How's everybody doing today? Excellent. Praise God. Um, let me uh, say a, a brief prayer, and then we will uh, we'll dive into the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful that the reality of the resurrection is not isolated to one day of the year, but it is a reality that we embrace every single day of our lives. And so I pray that as we... Uh, continue in the wake of the holiday of Easter that you would so impart to us in our time in the scriptures today the glory of the resurrection of Christ that will lead to the glory of the resurrection of his people, the saints. Impart that to our hearts as a treasure and as the hope that drives every aspect of our lives, Father God. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, amen. So if you have your Bibles, please uh, take them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Um, and if you're paying attention, you may be wondering, why are we going back to 1 Corinthians 15? That's the text we were in for Easter in our Easter series. Um, and there's many reasons for that. Um, but the main one, is that the promise of Easter, just like I was praying, um, the promise of Easter from God isn't just for Easter. The promise of the resurrection isn't just focused on one day of the year. The resurrection is for every day of our lives. It pushes out beyond uh, a single holiday to each and every single day that we live. And so for the Christian, Easter is all year round, every day of the week is in many respects what Easter means. The resurrection is a reality we live in every single day. And here at the beginning of, of chapter 15, which we've been in the past few weeks, ironically, this is the end of our series, and yet we are diving into Paul's launching point because we've been traveling backwards through this chapter. Uh, in his, the launching point of this chapter, Paul articulates the same truth that I just said, that the hope of the resurrection isn't just an abstract truth that we pull off the shelves, dust it off once a year, look at it, appreciate it, and then we put it back up on the shelves the day after Easter. That's not the way that it works. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of the saints at the end of the age is the driving force of the Christian life. Paul's going to show us that here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Um, and so let's, let's take a look at this. Let's start with verse 1, where Paul really introduces all that he's going to talk about in this chapter, much of which we've covered the last three weeks. Verse 1, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul here begins this chapter that's going to compass the entirety of what the resurrection means with the gospel. He begins a chapter of the first book of Corinthians rooted in the gospel. And he reminds the Corinthians, listen, I already preached this gospel to you. You know it. You received it. You believed in it. You are standing in it. It is your life. The gospel is what you stand in, and it is saving you if you're holding fast to the word, if you're clinging to the truth of the gospel, and that's not a, a vain, temporary faith, 
If, if your faith is real in the gospel, then the gospel is saving you. And so when he begins verse 3, the next verse after these first two, he's going to explain and articulate what he means by gospel. When Paul says the word gospel, what does he mean? And that's what he's going to explain here. Verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is the gospel. He delivered something as first importance, what he also received, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then Paul, after this, in the verses which follow, will provide a list of of eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, which we unfortunately don't have time to dive into today because it's not the main focus of this section. But he mentions Cephas, uh, Simon Peter, the 12 disciples, 500 people at one time saw him, and then James, his brother, and the apostles that he would send out, and then Paul himself. All of these are people who have seen the risen Christ with their very own eyes. But going back to what he's saying about the gospel, think about this for a second. He, He says, the gospel was delivered to you, what I received, and it is of first importance. In other words, the gospel in the Christian's life is the single most important thing. Without it, there is no Christian life. Without it, there is no Christianity. And he describes the gospel really in a simple way. He says Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now note the phrases that Paul uses here to describe the gospel. He says it didn't happen randomly. It only happened because God had promised it would happen in the scriptures. And so throughout the Old Testament, God was making these promises. It was promised that Christ would both die and that he would rise from the dead. And if you were reading through the Holy Week devotional that we had, you know that the main text we were looking at in that devotional was Isaiah 53, the seminal text in the scriptures about Christ's, resur- or Christ's uh, crucifixion, ironically written 100 years before Jesus was even born. That's a promise from God. A promise that Paul is saying God kept. And when we think about Christ's resurrection, so that uh, we've seen in Hosea 6 as early as last, just uh, in January. We looked at Hosea 6-2 in our Know Him series, and it it says this in Hosea 6-2. After two days, he will revive us. (coughs) Excuse me. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. So that's a a prophecy that is ultimately pointing to Jesus. It includes all of us, but Jesus was the first one to rise from the dead. And then uh, in the devotionals that we looked through uh, for Easter, the Holy Week devotionals, we also saw Psalm 16, a psalm written by David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Yet in Acts 2, it says specifically that was written ultimately in a culminating way about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of those things exist in the Old Testament scriptures to show God makes promises and then he keeps them. He makes a promise and then he goes out and he gets it done. 
and keeps that promise. And that's what the gospel is. The gospel is God's promised redemption for his people through his son's death and his resurrection. And that's what Paul's saying here at the beginning of this, this chapter. The gospel happened according to the scriptures. And Paul says all of this is the gospel. All of this is of first importance. So this is something that's important for us to see. The gospel isn't just about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's not the whole gospel. That is a massive part of the gospel. But the death of Jesus itself means nothing if Christ wasn't raised. It means nothing. Paul is saying that without the resurrection, because he includes the resurrection when he describes the gospel, He says, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no gospel. If Christ isn't raised, there's no good news for us. And uh, in verses 12 and through 19, he's going to tell us, and it really unpack for us why that's the case. Why is it that we needed Jesus to rise from the dead? So look at this, verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So now we we get a little insight into why Paul's even writing this chapter. Apparently, there were those in the Corinthian church, and Nikki mentioned this earlier, that claimed that there was no resurrection of the dead, of the saints. There was no, at the end of the age, raising up of all of those who were in Christ. And Paul looked at that idea and says that's completely incoherent with the gospel. And he makes the argument here because Christ hasn't been raised. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So think about Paul's argument here. It's interesting. He says that if there is no, uh, if there is no resurrection at the end of the age then not even Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, why would he say that? Well, his point is that um, the only reason for Christ to have risen from the dead, the only reason for him to accomplish that is that his people would be raised with him. There would be no reason for him to accomplish that, that act of raising himself from the dead if there was no resurrection at the end of the age. This is how deeply Paul, in Paul's mind, how deeply Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago and our resurrection out in the future somewhere that only God knows when it is, how deeply connected they are. They, they're, they're inseparable realities. In the mind of Paul and in the mind of God who inspired this letter, these two events are not separate events, even if they're separated by time. They are the same reality. To borrow from the language we looked at last week, they're the same harvest. The same harvest. Though Christ is the first fruits and we are its fullness, they are profoundly connected. And so think about the implications of that. For us to disregard or disabuse ourselves of or even just ignore and diminish our own resurrection at the end of the age is for us to disregard, disabuse, and ignore Christ's own resurrection. And without that, Paul says, you have no gospel. You have zero gospel, and you have zero salvation. 
And Paul explains why, starting in verse 14, in the verses that follow. Listen to this. And if Christ, he says, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, he's going to say it again, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So think about this. I mean, this is fascinating to me because I don't think like this. Refusing to believe in the resurrection of the saints at the end of the age is not simply having a broken or malfunctioning view of eschatology, of the the subject of last things. It's not simply having a wrong understanding of how the end times are going to play out. It is to actually eliminate the gospel of Jesus Christ outright. It is to eliminate all that it means. Paul says that if we're not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised, and Christ's resurrection is critical to the gospel. The gospel loses all coherency if Christ isn't raised. He says here, if Christ isn't raised, their preaching is in vain. In fact, he says, we're misrepresenting God. We are blaspheming against God by preaching that Christ is raised if that's not what God wants us to preach. So this is how central the resurrection is to Paul's view of the gospel. If their preaching is in vain, he says, the message that we're preaching is false, then your faith in that message is also in vain. It's also false. It's futile, he calls it, which means that it is worthless. So if Jesus hasn't been raised, all of that that Paul's preached to them in the gospel is in vain. To believe something that is false is to have a worthless faith. Think about that for a second. We, I know we live in a culture where it's fine. There's this pluralistic notion that everyone's view has equal merit and equal value. But, I mean, we're sensible people. That's not true. I mean, talk to a scientist. It's not true scientifically. Every view of gravity is not equal. There's one real view of gravity, and then there's a lot of false views of gravity. Think about historically. Think about medically. Nobody has this, nobody holds on to this notion that every view is actually having its own merit and its own equality. There is truth in this world, especially if we believe that God has clearly spoken through his son. If we believe that, if we know that to be true, then it means the truth actually matters and it matters forever in this case. And so Paul is confident about this. He is confident that if the resurrection of Christ never happened, our faith, the faith of the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago and every faithful church in between is useless. What we believe matters, not based on how well we, how strong we are in our belief in it, but whether or not it's true. It's not sufficient just to have faith. All roads don't lead to the same end. And this is how committed Paul is to the reality of the resurrection. If it's either true or we are all lost, he says. 
And he says that if our faith is, is, is futile, if what we're believing is actually false, then we are still in our sins, which is really where we, we hit the bottom with this analysis. In other words, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. I think we tend to, as Christians, and we do emphasize it rightly, the cross of Jesus Christ, the moment where Christ ransomed us from sin and death. But do we, in our emphasis of the cross, recognize that whatever value the cross had in its accomplishments, namely, the the chief value is paying for our sins and reconciling us to the Father, that value is only available to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying in this text. Without his resurrection, we are not forgiven of any sins and we are not righteous before God. Romans 4 goes as far to say that Christ was raised for our justification. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans 4. So without the resurrection, we're still in our sins, and Paul explains the implications of that in verse 18. Look at what he says here. He says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. When he says fallen asleep here, he he means to die. Those who have died, even if they've trusted in Christ, even if they've received the gospel, even if they believe in it, they have ultimately perished. They've died in their sins. And they've died to be forever separated from God. All of this hangs on the resurrection of Jesus. All of this hangs on whether or not he rose from the dead. And then Paul, in verse 19, closes this line of thinking, his argument here, with a massive statement where we're going to spend most of our time today on. Verse 19, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, that is, Christians who have actually trusted in Jesus, are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying that for the Christian, if this life is all that we have, then we, of all the people in this world, should be most pitied. We should be regarded by the world as pitiful if the hope that we have in the resurrection is false. And what he's doing here is he's bringing the the Corinthian church's doubt about the resurrection at the end of the age to its logical conclusion in this world. If the resurrection is true, and, or if the resurrection isn't true, and there is no time at the end of the age where Christ will return and raise his people up, then the world really should look at our lives and should find our lives, the lives of Christians in this world, to be utterly and tragically pitiful, Paul says. That's how the world should look at our lives. The Christian life, absent of the resurrection on the final day, is without any merit. I mean, he uses harsh language. It's almost as though he's saying that if there's no resurrection on the final day, the Christian life is only worthy to be scorned and mocked, and rightly so because we're trusting in something that is false. This is how serious Paul views our need as Christians to have a hope 
for the resurrection, a longing for the resurrection. Removing the hope of the resurrection from our lives doesn't just disintegrate the gospel, the sufficiency and the effectiveness of the cross, which it clearly does. That's what he spent a large portion of the beginning of the chapter talking about. It doesn't just erase the value of the cross, but it actually completely eviscerates the entire life, the motivation, the driving force of the Christian. And Paul uses an example a few verses later. Skim down to verse 30. Look at this. He uses his own life experience as a frontline missionary to describe why a life without the resurrection would be hopeless. Verse 30. He says, why are we, that is Paul and others who are preaching with him, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul here is talking from experience. Frontline missionary talking about the trials that he's had as a witness to the gospel, especially in a culture like his that is so hostile to the truth. He says he's in danger every hour. Can you imagine that? Every hour he's in danger. He says, I have to die every day to my fleshly inclinations toward self-preservation. He says, if the dead are not raised, then why do I give my life to this? Why is this my life? If there's no resurrection from the dead, then this kind of living is a complete joke. Why would I sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ if it all ends for me the moment I take my last breath? If that's the case, he says, quoting a Greek comedy here, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If this is all that I have, and after I die, it's over, why am I spending my life like this? So the hope of the resurrection in the heart of a Christian isn't just essential, and it is essential, it isn't just essential to the the theological framework of the gospel, but it is, Paul says, the very fuel that burns in the heart of a Christian leading to the kind of life that we see right here. That's what causes it, this hope that he has in the gospel. The Christian life, as it is laid out in the New Testament, over and over and over again, is a life that is rooted in this hope of the resurrection. It is a life that is born out of this hope. It is forged in the fires of this hope that Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 15. For example, 1 Peter 1, when describing the creation of a Christian, Peter uses this language. According to God's mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter is saying here, 
that our entire Christian life arose from this hope, this living hope. He calls it a living hope that exists only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this, this hope that's in our hearts reaches out towards an inheritance in the future that is eternal life. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In other words, he, he's saying that, that this hope of the resurrection, despite everything in our lives to tell us otherwise, everything in our lives that perishes, everything in our lives that is defiled, everything in our lives that is fading away, despite all of that, everything physical that we have that will go away, this inheritance won't. This inheritance isn't like that. I mean, even our bodies are going to perish. They're going to fade away. I mean, some of you feel that more keenly than others in this room. I feel it every time I go for a run. <laughs> your body's going to fade. Um, your body will be defiled, mainly by yourself, by sin. And your, your body one day, we've been making this clear the last few weeks, one day your body will perish and you'll die. But this living hope isn't going to experience that. The reality that this living hope is fix, fixed on will never, ever, ever perish or be defiled or fade away. And it, Peter says God is keeping this inheritance in heaven, free from all corruption, free from all defilement. He's going to have it. It will be perfect and pure when we receive it, and it will never, ever fade. And so this hope focuses our life not on what we experience in the present world, it focuses our life on an eternal inheritance that is being kept for us by God. And that's the hope of the Christian. That's the hope that, we, that created us, that, that brought us into existence, according to Peter. Now, what needs to be clarified here, and this is important, this is an important point to make, is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 isn't, and Peter in, in 1 Peter 1, isn't arguing for escapism that we would just check out of this life. Saying like, our lives don't matter in this world. We're waiting for the world to come. Okay, well, let's just wait for that next world. Let's just check out. Paul's not saying that. In fact, he's saying the exact opposite of that. Because we have this hope, our lives in this world matter infinitely. They matter eternally. They matter forever. Not to indulge in the the things that are in this world as though they're the only things that we'll ever have, but to live in light of eternity. To live in the light of the resurrection, that's what it means to have the, the living hope of 1 Peter. It's to live in such a way that people look at our lives and they see their lives are not shaped by the present circumstances, but they are shaped by eternity. And that's why, I mean, for me, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 is so convicting, and, I, and I, I hope that it is at some level for you as well. Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so this is the main question that I felt hitting me when I read this passage. And this is where I think our study in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to come to a close. When Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied if this life is all that we have, what kind of life should we have? What kind of life should we have if, in fact, we will be 
raised. Do our lives prove out the statement of verse 19 in this text? Knowing that the resurrection is real, knowing that it's true, knowing that one day Christ will come and he will raise all who are in him, do we live in such a way that reflects that reality? That people who don't know this truth and don't believe this truth would pity us because they think we're wasting our lives on things that are frivolous. Does that reflect our lives? I think it's easy to claim to believe the resurrection of the saints on the final day. It's easy to make that statement, even make that mental, intellectual assent. But it is another thing entirely to live in such a way that every single thing in our lives is driven by or rooted in this living hope that Peter mentions. It's another thing entirely. That our, our lives, our very lives would be shaped by this reality that when Christ comes, we will be raised. How should our lives look? Do they look like this? Do they look like Paul's life? Or do they look like the lives of everyone else in this world? Do our lives look like, First Thessalonians says, those who have no hope? Talking about this same hope. Do we look like the world around us? And when I talk about this stuff, I'm talking about everything. And how we talk, and how we spend our time, and how we spend our money, and how we give our lives. Do our lives, does your life, and I'm thinking about myself, show the hope that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. And to consider this, I want to look at something that Jesus says. So if you could turn quickly to John 12, and we're going to spend the rest of our time on this. Jesus in John 12 gives a promise. And it is a promise that helps us understand the realities of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Peter 1, and anywhere in the scriptures that engage this hope. It's a promise that helps us understand what it means to live with this hope. And it comes on the heels of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. Remember, his friend had been dead for four days. And Jesus, with a command of his mouth, raised him from the dead. It comes on the heels of that, and it comes only hours prior to Jesus' own death on the cross wedged right in there. And he makes this pivotal statement at the very end of his public ministry. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when we think about what Paul is saying about the centrality of the hope of, of the resurrection in the Christian life, he is only echoing what Christ says here. He is only repeating in different words what Jesus is about to tell us in John 12. So we should listen to Jesus very closely, because he's Jesus, and because Paul is echoing him. <laughs> Verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So on the eve of his own death, Jesus speaks about being glorified. And he's referring to uh, the cross, which you can see in the immediate context. That's why he begins with this, this analogy of a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying. The hour that he's referring to here, the hour of his glorification, is the hour that he's been headed towards since the first moment he breathed on this planet. His death on the cross. And this analogy is here to show us what he intends to accomplish by dying. His death has a purpose. Just like a grain of wheat falling into the ground, falls into the earth, and it dies. And if it didn't do that, it would remain alone. And Christ's death is not here to uh, remain alone so that he's the only one. Christ's death happened to bear much fruit by redeeming those who would belong to him. And if, if, if Jesus had just left this analogy there and just stopped, it would be a beautiful picture of his redemption. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus never leaves it there. He always presses deeper, and in verse 35, he invites us into the analogy. We're no longer just watching it. We are now participants. The analogy isn't of a grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying isn't just about him on the cross anymore. It's about us. It's about everyone who will follow him. Verse 35, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So this analogy all of a sudden got very real for the people listening to him and for us 2,000 years later. Because he's taking the analogy, now he's pushing it into our own lives. He's saying this is actually part of who you are. He says if we love our lives, we will lose them. But if we hate our lives in this world, we will keep them for eternal life. So before we unpack that, let's just be very clear about it. This is about eternity. This is about the resurrection. This is a promise from Jesus, just like the promises of the Old Testament leading to and pointing to his death and resurrection. This is a promise from Jesus, but not about him. This is a promise from Jesus about us and about our resurrection. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to have, to taste, to experience living hope, real hope in the resurrection. He says to love your life in other words, to live in this world as though this life is all that we have is to lose your life eternally. It's to forsake your life forever. But if we hate our lives in this world, not hate the gift of life that we've been given from God, but not spend that gift on ourselves like it's all about us, like this is all we have, so we're going to just live it up right now, but rather, instead of doing that, to hate our lives in this world is to give ourselves completely to Christ. To give ourselves completely to Jesus. He says, if we do that, we live forever. Eternal life. And this is a command. He's not inviting the 
the, the people who are hearing him, you know, take it or leave it. If you want to do this, this is a good idea. If not, that's okay. This is a command on all who claim to follow him. And it is a command that, listen to me, impacts every millimeter of our lives. There is nothing that this command is neutral on or leaves untouched in our lives. Everything is touched. How do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our energy, our schedules? How do we respond to suffering, our own suffering? Like, how do we respond to when we go through suffering in our lives? What does that look like? How do we respond to the suffering in this world? How do we respond to our own sin when we've dishonored God? All of these facets, and how we like care and love for the community around us, all of these facets are touched by this command. They, they, they intersect with what Jesus is saying here. There isn't anything in our lives that this command from Christ doesn't leave untouched. And eternity is at stake. I mean, that's the driving emphasis of his statement. He's saying, live in light of eternity. Live like there is a resurrection every day of your life. Give yourself completely to this. Remember Paul's mantra, I die every day. That's not hyperbole. That's not an exaggeration. He he means every single day I wake up in the morning and I resolve to die to my impulses and my desires of self-preservation or self-aggrandizement or self-advancement or the accumulation, and this is a big problem in America, of more junk, more stuff I don't need. I die to that and I give my life in this world for the sake of Christ. And so when I, when I read texts like this, the first thing I ask is, is this me? Is this true about me? Am I outside this grid? And I think a lot of ways, I, I feel my own life, areas where, that need to come into alignment with this. Jesus concludes his statement in John 12 with verse 26. Listen to what he says here. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. I mean, that alone. (laughs) And where I am, he says, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So following Jesus is following him anywhere. And Jesus is about to go to the cross here. What he's saying is that the only way into the resurrection with me is through the cross. The only way into the resurrection is by dying to ourselves. And his promise here is that if we're with him in his death, we will be with him in life forever, in eternity with him, with raised bodies. We will be raised. That's his promise here. Do we believe this? I'm not saying like, do you agree with it intellectually or theologically? Does our schedule each week look like we believe this? Or are we insular, closed off, only really interested in shoring up what we have in this life? Do we look like every other person in this world? I mean, that's the question. 
His last statement is <sighs> so staggering to me. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's that like? This is the God of the universe. The creator of all things will honor the one who serves his son. A servant who lives in light of eternity. A servant who gives his life, not just as lip service or pretense or as a game, but he lays down his life every day. Paul says, or Jesus says, that servant will be honored by the father. The father will honor Think about this. I don't know all that that means. I don't think anybody does on this side of eternity. But I imagine it's something like the God of the universe taking us into his arms and saying, I'm proud of you. You gave yourself to my son. You believed him when he made this promise to you. You followed him into his death, and from now on, you will have unequaled joy in my presence forever. I think him honoring us has something to do with that. Do we believe this promise from Jesus? One day, each of us in this room, and each of us listening at home, are going to look Jesus Christ, the Lord of the universe, into the face. We're going to see him face to face. And on that day, it won't matter what we say with our mouths or what we've been able to put up as a show. It will only matter if our lives actually reflect this reality. The claims that we've made with our mouths, do they line up with the lives that we have? And he's promised us here in John 12 that anyone who serves him like this, anyone who gives up their life in this world, will be with him where he is. It doesn't matter where he is. We will be with him forever, raised to never die again. That's the promise that Jesus gives us. A few moments we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And I want us to reflect on this promise. I think we all know areas in our lives where this is, I'll speak for myself. I know areas specifically in my life where this isn't true where those areas are blind to this promise and act as though this promise isn't real. And sometimes areas in our lives feel hopelessly addicted to this present age, to this world, as though we're shoring up things and all that matters is right now. But as we come to the Lord's table and as we consider what Jesus has said here in John 12, I want us to be encouraged by this simple fact. When Jesus used that analogy of a grain of wheat falling into the ground so that it would not remain alone, he's talking about you. He's saying that you are, if your faith is in Christ, part of the people who now surround him because he is not alone. In other words, the fruit of Christ's death on the cross is our own ability every day to die to ourselves. He purchased it with his blood. He secured it with his own death that we can live out all that he has commanded here. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to struggle. But the cross of Christ means that he 
isn't alone. That Christ isn't going to just die and pass out of existence, but that he's going to create a people for himself who will follow him just like he's commanded. And I, I want you, to, as we participate in the Lord's Supper, to really consider the promise of Christ. It is precious. It is worth banking your entire life on. In fact, I would say it's worth banking your entire eternity on. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are welcome to join and participate in the Lord's Supper. And I want you just to know this. This is Paul's main point in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15 is that there is nothing that you will part with in this life. Nothing that you will part with in this life, no matter how precious it is to you right now, that can compare to the promise of the resurrection and what Christ offers where we will be with him forever. There is literally nothing more glorious, nothing more satisfying, nothing more enthralling, nothing more exciting, nothing more exulting than the reality that he promises in 1 Corinthians 15. And Jesus has made this promise to all of us who believe it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you that you look down on our brokenness and our sinfulness and our addiction to this world. And you had mercy on us. Even through the corridor of time, you saw me, you saw my friends here, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and you saw the areas of our lives that would be captive to this present life, this present world. And you sent your son to die for us. Out of your great love and mercy for us and your compassion and your desire to take us up in your arms with great joy so that we can enter into that joy forever. Father, I pray that you would so strip our lives of the things that keep us preoccupied and insular. And help us not to store up treasures in this world, but that we would store up treasure in heaven. Father, grant this to us. I can, I can ask for this. I can plead with my own heart and my own soul for this. But what we each need is a sovereign work of your spirit on our hearts. Work in the deepest parts of our souls to change our affections, Father God. That we would follow Jesus all the way through the cross and into eternity raised to new life. Thank you for this hope of the resurrection, Father. In the name of Jesus, I ask these things. Amen.